Club podcast. This week we catch up with David Jenkins to find out whether he made it on one tank of fuel to John O'Groats in his XJR, and we review the life of Max Mosley. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott here with you on the final podcast of May 2021. It's a bank holiday weekend. As I record this, the sun is shining and we are looking forward to the big event. 4th of July at Bista Heritage, the Summer Jaguar Festival, of course, not long to go now. And uh, the last few bits of preparations are being put in place down at Bista Heritage for what promises to be a fantastic celebration of so many amazing anniversaries. And of course, it is the big anniversary of the Jaguar E-Type, that iconic car that is celebrating 60 years this year. But also there are a few other little anniversaries we're trying to mark as well. And in 1951, 70 years ago, it was the 19th running of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and it was the first victory for Jaguar. That year, the race took place on the 23rd and 24th of June, and it was won in a C-Type by Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead. A monumental moment in Jaguar's history, and one we couldn't let go without marking it with a special display of early Le Mans cars. And we wanted to cover virtually all of the different aspects of racing of Jaguar. You'll see some of the cars out on track at Bista Heritage, but we also have looked at some of the other racing cars throughout the 1950s as well and as part of that lineup we've got a very special Jaguar D-Type joining us as well and here to tell us more is Steve Daniels. Hi Steve. Hello there. So we've got a superstar joining us as part of our Le Mans lineup haven't we? We certainly have yes. Uh, it's very fortunate that contacts of mine at Bista Heritage where I also volunteer were able to put me in touch with the owners of one of those 1957 Le Mans D-types that are so famous. Well, this one is not only a famous car, but it had a very famous driver, first of all. It uh, left the factory's XKD603, but it had the factory registration number on it in competition as uh, 7474RW, and it was driven by one Mike Hawthorne, wasn't it? Indeed it was, yes, and over time it ended up with his special paint job, so you knew it was a Hawthorne car. Also, the lineup of drivers who've taken to the steering wheel of this D-Type include uh, the legendary Duncan Hamilton, of course, who later won uh, in 1954 in the C-Type and then went on to race this D-Type. Desmond Titterington, there's a name from the 1950s. And, of course, Sterling Moss's pal, Jack Fairman, as well. But uh, for you, Stephen, what makes this car really special? Why is it so important that it joins us at Bista Heritage? Well, as you say, it was one of the original six long noses built by Jaguar for its factory teams. But then it moved across in due course after a couple of crashes and rebuilds so it's had different names at different times and come to that different colors until when it moved over to a courier cost so it went from a british racing green to start with to the courier cost lovely i suppose you'd call it scottish blue fleet and as you say it was registered firstly as i think 774rw then it went through a registration of 603 before becoming what it is today and still therefore RSF 303. 
But I guess the big story is that whilst it raced in 57 at Buenos Aires, Spa, Nürburgring and the St Etienne Grand Prix, it is, of course, the 57 Le Mans that it's famous for, where it was second placed in the famous, never to be matched again, first, second, third, fourth and sixth placed Jaguar D-types in the race with, as I say, 303, we'll call it our car, coming in second. And really only by a matter of seconds from the first one. Amazing, really. This is what makes these shows so special, isn't it? That you get to see history, not behind a velvet rope in, in a museum, but actually there in front of you. You can get really close to these cars and really just feel the the history behind them and get to see them up close. It's what makes Bista Heritage so special, isn't it? It, it certainly is. I'll, I'll caveat what you've said a bit, if I may, Wayne. Um, inevitably, a car of this pedigree and heritage is extremely valuable. So, no, we've not got velvet ropes, but there will be some barriers, but there'll be those sort of uh, black strap barriers. But you're pretty much right people will be able to get very really close and personal just not so much that they touch it and wipe a load of value off the car in seconds <laughs> well the important <laughs> thing is you'll be close enough to smell it and i do recommend you Absolutely. do this have a sniff in the cockpit that's the thing to do because there is all sorts of amazing aromas of oils and fuels and leather in a jaguar d-type and uh, absolutely i talked about it going through rebuilds where its rebuilds were using parts of its sisters would we call them that weren't any longer roadworthy but other than that it's absolutely original. You know, the leather is the leather that's been there since the start. Um, and other than safety maintenance, I expect all the pipes underneath and the tank and God knows what will be original and have those aromas exactly as you say, Wayne. Fabulous stuff. Well, it's a D-type that we're looking forward to seeing at uh, Bista Heritage. 4th of July, if you haven't got your tickets yet, you can get them still, but I'd hurry up. Get them now, jec.org.uk forward slash festival. Takes you straight to the page that you need to go to to buy your tickets. And it's going to be a fantastic day out. Nice to see all the other Jaguars there as well. As I said, we'll be celebrating 60 years of the Jaguar E-Type, uh, the Mark 10 as well, the X-Type even celebrating 20 years and 25 years of the first of the XK8s launched in the late 90s there. So lots to enjoy at Bista Heritage for the Summer Jaguar Festival, 4th of July. And uh, you are very much part of the volunteer team, Steve. So you must be looking forward to seeing everyone arriving in their amazing cars as well. Oh, absolutely. As the Oxfordshire region, Andy Webber's involved us from the start. There's hordes of us with jobs to do, but we're really chuffed to be able to play the host region at such an iconic location and be involved in bringing just such a display together. What fun. Well, there's a lot more to that car than we've been able to cover on this podcast. There's an incredible and detailed story coming your way, though, because you can read the full life story of that very special Jaguar D-Type in the June issue of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine that is available to you for free if you're a member of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. 
all you have to do to sign up if you're not a member already is go to jc.org.uk or on the podcast page jcpodcast.com in the right hand side top corner there you'll see join the club just click the button there follow the instructions and you'll be a fully paid up member which means you'll get included for free that magazine and as i say in june we will be covering the full story including some incredible period photographs telling the full story of that very special d-type that you'll be able to see at the summer jaguar festival this july the 4th at bista heritage now from one set of celebrations to another now because we're going to catch up with someone we interviewed a month ago on this podcast when he was getting ready and preparing for his Britain-long economy challenge all raising money for Great Ormond Street Hospital. Did the XJR make it? We'll find out shortly after Richard West's Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Now this week, Motorsport lost one of its big movers and shakers, Max Mosley, of course, who passed away earlier this week the mainstream media have covered all of the stories about his family history his privacy campaigns and that monumental court battle he had with the news of the world but we're car fans we're not interested in any of that stuff you can read the newspapers for that instead we'd like to talk about just what it was that he contributed to motorsport. So uh, Richard West, uh, he is one of the, well, as I say, one of the big influencers on motorsport through pretty much the last 50 years, really. Well, very much what so, Wayne, and um, a, a great loss to the world of motorsport, actually, because in his latter years, uh, I, and under his presidency, uh, where he held that role as president of the Fédération Internationale de Automobile, the FIA, which he held from October 93 through to October 2009. He was an incredible driver of safety, and he also was a great believer in the budget cap in Formula One, which has now come to be, which was a way of trying to prevent teams overspending and making it very, very difficult for the, the lesser teams to come to the fore. But he had a really remarkable career, and I have to say, uh, and you know I've met many of the people in motorsport right across the spectrum of rallying, racing, and sports cars, and Max most certainly was one of the sharpest, most charming, and could also be an adversary that you really did not want to cross. Uh, men, I think, ever walked the paddock. And also, of course, a great confidant and the man who helped Bernie Eccleston build Formula One into what the sport is today. Well, he tried to be an engineer, first of all. He actually studied physics at Oxford University, but then he... He got kind of, I guess, embroiled in the political world that was naturally uh, going to be part of his life through his family background and ended up going towards being a lawyer. Mm. Ended up in motorsport, I suppose, as many do. He tried to be a racing driver and wasn't quite quick enough. No, again, he was around that early period when people like Pierce Courage, uh, Frank Williams and the others, you know, were the sort of almost a brat pack running around the paddocks of uh, the lesser formula. And Max had uh, uh, quite a strong relationship with Frank Williams and a number of the other people like Ken Tyrrell, etc. And particularly, uh, he met, you know, a young Bernie Eccleston. And it was quite clear with Bernie's incredible uh, commercial abilities. And Max was not without his commercial abilities either when he formed uh, March Engineering along with Alan Reese, Graham Coker and Robin Hurd based at Vista of all places on the old trading estate where I started my motorsport career. Um, he already was a great salesman. Um, his role within the March organization was to A, look for sponsorship and B, to convince other teams to take the March chassis 
which he did very successfully with Ken Tyrrell in Formula One. And then, of course, March became an incredible uh, force within customer racing cars in Formula Two and Formula Three as well. So he, he really had a very broad spectrum of knowledge. Uh, he was, as I say, he was a charmer. He spoke several languages. He was fiercely intelligent. And at the same time, you know, that old expression that he could, when he needed to, charm the hind legs off a donkey. I mean, he, he really was a remarkable, remarkable man. Let's talk about March Engineering because, I mean, the name comes from Max Mosley for the M, Alan Reese for the A&R, uh, Graham Coker for the C and Robin Hurd as the H. Uh, they mm. really pioneered what we see as commonplace now. You take it for granted that a manufacturer specialises in a race car chassis, sells it to numerous teams up and down the grid who then mix it with various different power plants or redevelop it under their own guys and mm. create teams out of it but it had not really been mm. done especially in formula one before that time had it not really no um obviously when you go back into the, the 50s and you know the very early 60s they were the manufacturer well almost the garage easties as mr enzo ferrari called them rather uh, unfairly in those early days but march engineering uh, the group got together and decided that really it was right to actually have a group of people who were very specialist in their individual areas, but bring them all together under one roof. And in my mind, I can still see the old March factory, you know, by the railway bridge in Vista. It, it was completely different. And because of that, uh, and Max, Max's charm and his intelligence, he was able to go out, he negotiated a sponsorship deal with Firestone. They had their own in-house works team. And of course, that works team started to beat many of the other teams that were in other formula. And as soon as somebody starts to beat you, you know, Formula 2, Formula 3, then immediately you want to talk to somebody. And their first real point of contact on sales was Max. And uh, he helped build March up into what was, including its racing in America as well, an incredibly successful manufacturer. And also one of the few teams that built a um, six-wheeler, as did Williams and uh, Tyrrell, of course. It always amazed me just how quickly they had that success as well. And you can find the Motorsport uh, article announcing this new March engineering car for Formula 3 in 1969. You can read the article, it's there. Then, all of mm. a sudden, a year later in 1970, they were in Formula 1, F2, F3, Formula Ford, and then even mm. later they went into the big V8s in Can-Am as well. Mm, they did. And in fact, you know, as you say, from 69 to 70, a very short period. And in fact, the 1970 Spanish Grand Prix was won by reigning world champion at that time, Jackie Stewart, in a customer car run by Tyrrell Racing. And as a result, March actually finished third in the 1970 Formula One Constructors Championship. I think what it was, it was if you were a budding team owner, it was an era when you looked for quick fix solutions and March provided a very secure, very well engineered, very competitive racing car at the right level of funds. And there was just, there was no competition out there to take them. And of course they became incredibly strong as a result of that very, very quickly. Well, at this point, it's a very good way of lining up the next point in the history really, because enter stage left, Hesketh Racing and James Hunt, who were precisely that, weren't they? They had no money, but they were desperate to get on the grid. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that there's so much written again about that relationship. And that was a team that it came in appearing at first as if it was one of those teams that was there for, you know, playboy entertainment. But it, with James in the car and the drive and determination that he and the others had around him with the ebullient character of 
you know, Hesketh, it, it just, again, made a fantastic statement in motorsport for the brand. Not only did they, as March as an engineering company, contribute a lot to the teams that won using their chassis and the drivers that then enjoyed the success as a result of that, but also Max Mosley very rarely gets the plaudits that he deserves for the influence he had later on in his career when he got into the top levels of management on the safety of drivers and especially with Jackie Stewart campaigning to ensure that circuits were safe and that cars were designed with safety in mind we take that Mm. for granted but that was an alien concept before Max Mosley and March Engineering and Jackie Stewart came into the sport Mm, it was indeed and I think also within that you know the period to which you're talking about there was a revolution effectively going on within within the top echelons of motorsport. The Formula One Constructors Association, FOCA, as it was then known, was created in 74 by Eccleston, uh, Bernie Eccleston, Colin Chapman. Teddy Mayer, of course, was involved along with Ken Tyrrell and now Sir Frank Williams. Um, the idea of that organisation was that the FOCA would represent the commercial interests of the teams at meetings with the CSI, which was part of the FIA. And at that time, Jean-Marie Belleste, the... Um, shall we say, rather fiery Frenchman, you know, with his thick-rimmed glasses and his black zipped-up jacket with FIA logo on it, would come to events, and there would frequently be clashes between Bernie and Jean-Marie, and, of course, in the background, quietly working away, very politically, very cleverly, very charmingly at times, was Max, and he played an enormous part in in moulding those early days. And, of course, as that friendship with... Um, with Bernie Eccleston and the teams progressed, when he became the president of the FIA, he was absolutely focused on safety, increasing safety within the sport, along with the late Professor Sid Watkins, who did so much medically for the sport. But of course, where it all came to a head was at Imola, which we've talked many times about on the podcast, 94, the weekend that we lost Roland Ratzenberg and Ayrton Senna, Max had also been in partnership with Nick Worth, who at that time was the designer of the Simtech, in which Roland lost his life. And almost immediately, Max brought in a range of draconian exchanges. He banned certain computer-aided devices on the cars. He made the cars more difficult to drive, but also he made them much safer. He, along with McLaren, with a number of leading engineering firms around the world, Ferrari, Williams, got heavily, heavily involved in redesigning the F1 car, tethering the front wheel and rear wheel assemblies through the wishbones onto the chassis so they couldn't be torn away. And he was an endless driver of uh, increasing safety in Formula One and all forms of motorsport, but also road car technology as well. And he must take great credit for that. Where did it all go wrong for Max Mosley? Because there was kind of a revolt against him, really, in the late 2000s, wasn't there? And I think a lot of it seemed to hinge around that slightly odd deal he did over the TV rights. But what do you think went wrong for him in the end? I wouldn't say it went wrong. I think for any of us, anybody who's worked in a senior level in motorsport, there's there's many people who've you know entered in a, a blaze of glory and disappeared equally in a blaze of something else. And I think that Max was at times controversial. Uh, I think he made a great friend, but a bad enemy. You know, from people I know who know him exceedingly well. And I just think that there, if you really think about it, when he came into Formula One in that role as president. Uh, the, the early 90s, October 93, 
Formula One was still a tobacco sport. It was a little bit wild. And then it, as it changed throughout the 90s, the period that followed the Senna Roland, Mat- uh, Roland Ratzenberger deaths, we moved into this period of much greater safety. And Max made a number of decisions that were absolutely right for the, for the sport, but probably weren't right for him. And of course, uh, he also, at that point, when he ran for presidency, came up against John Todd, who just come off the back of his incredibly successful career with Ferrari and Michael Schumacher and Ross Braun winning seven world championship titles. You also had, uh, John had great experience of the Peugeot World Sports Car Programme with Keki Rosberg up against TWR Jaguar in the 90s. And prior to that, John had also been a co-driver. I think it was Jean Ragnotti in the uh, Renault 5 turbo cars. And, you know, he came along very charming, very clever, very experienced, ran for president. And there you go. You know, he got the role and, and, and Max continued to operate as an advisor and a very close confidant of Bernie Ecclestone throughout the period after his presidency ceased. It's interesting, isn't it? One of his most controversial moments, and I remember it distinctly, which doesn't seem that long ago now, but I suppose it's over a decade ago, when he started to make moves towards a budget cap for those top teams that were consistently winning. I mean, it went down like a lead balloon, didn't it? But funny that 10 years later, despite the controversy it caused at the time, with some big teams like Ferrari threatening to go and set up a competition um, championship to Formula One uh, and take all their mates with them. Now here we are in 2021 and these are the same conversations Formula One is having to have all over again. Absolutely and in fact those are, I, I remember the, the debates with all the team principals very very well from my time in F1 towards the end of my spell in F1. There was huge controversy over budget caps because clearly the raw material of any good motorsport program is cash. And the more of it you have, if you spend it wisely and carefully, you, you know, you increase your competitiveness. Max came from an era when he'd lived through the FISA poker war, when in actual fact, teams did break away. A number of the teams, where I think it was 80, 81, can't remember which year, went to South Africa and ran a non-championship race and locked themselves in overnight and were surrounded by armed police from the South African army who, you know, threatened to storm the building and get them out. So Max had not, wasn't new to that controversy within the sport, but the budget cap, he was very eloquent at putting forward the reasons for capping budgets. And although it was never possible under, you know, under Bernie's stewardship of Formula One, because that was a different era, when Liberty Media took over, and I think the teams then began to realize that $400, $450 million a year to run a Formula One team commercially we always used to work on the basis that for every dollar a sponsor spent with you in terms of the fee, you would recommend to and they spent between three and five dollars on activation. Well, you know, it would take a brave person to try and convince their board to spend two billion dollars on a year of motor racing. So Max's insistence that the figures had to come down and the expenditure had to be better managed within the teams led to what you described very well a few minutes ago as being now a budget cap that all the teams have accepted. How do you think Bernie Eccleston will be affected by Max Mosley's death? Because they were, I don't think anyone really gets close to Bernie Eccleston, do they? But Max Mosley managed that. I think they were incredibly close. And as Bernie said the other day when Max passed on the 23rd, I feel like I've lost my brother. And they, they were remarkably close. They were a very, very competent, clever duo. And I think the only other person who ever came that close to Bernie was the late great Sid Watkins, who we mentioned just now, Professor Sid, who took over the medical side 
and also of course then worked very closely hand in hand with Bernie and Max on all of the safety issues that have made motorsport as safe as it is today. So I would imagine it's, it's painful for Bernie. They knew each other a very, very long time. And let's not forget, aside from any of that controversy stuff that we've brushed aside today, Max Mosley is truly one of the greats and motorsport and the world of road transport owns a great deal to him and should mourn his passing. Formula One history and indeed historic racing wouldn't be the same without March vehicles on the grid either. So uh, Max Mosley then, who died this week, aged 81. Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's podcast, we're catching up on the results from a charity run that we shared with you, well, about a month ago now, actually, uh, already, back on episode 45. And you remember we spoke to David Jenkin back then about a Top Gear-style challenge to raise money for Great Ormond Street Hospital. The plan was to drive from the BP garage in Banstead, Surrey, (laughs) to Inverness. That's a total of 586 miles on a single tank of fuel in his 2007 supercharged Jaguar XJR. So, did the 4.2-litre V8 do the business? Did the supercharger suck the tank dry? We'll find out. And we'll also find out how much money he's raised so far. David Jenkins, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, hi, Wayne. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's great to have you back on. And uh, first question for you, basically, is have you recovered from your sleep yet? (laughs) Yeah, just about. Um, I think, to be fair, in in, in that car, it was, you know, we we paced it well. Um, I didn't feel too exhausted when we got there. Um, and the trip back was obviously a lot quicker. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fully recovered. Thank you. So remind us then of exactly how this all came about and how you came up with the idea of doing an economy run to John O'Groats. Okay, so um, it was uh, a laugh and a joke in our in our Facebook group, uh, Jaguar Tribe. And, um, yeah, we just one of our members suggested that if I was ever around in Vanessa, then maybe he'd buy lunch and a, and a couple of pints. So... I jokingly said that I'd be on my way and he reminded me that it would cost an absolute fortune to get there in, in my car. Um, so I looked it up and thought, well, maybe half a chance of being able to get there if I was super careful. Um, and it turned into this wonderful charity challenge that, you know, we've, we've now raised over two and a half thousand pounds for Great Ormond Street Hospital. Talk us through the journey then. I mean, you know, you're well equipped, let's be honest, in a supercharged Jaguar, uh, a 2007 model. So it's got all the mod cons, it's got the luxuries, but the challenge was that you had to get as much miles to the gallon out of it. So you couldn't use the performance. I'm guessing you spent a lot of the time mixing it with the lorries in the slow lane. Yeah, and absolutely. Anything that I could do to, to break up um, you know, punch a hole in the air in front of me. So there was there was lots of lots of lorries along the way. Um, but so uh, yeah, we just picked up what we could when when we could. Um, as, I mean, as far as the the journey went into the true Top Gear style, um, we planned planned the journey appallingly badly. Um, so so that Mark Atkinson and, and Lynn, his wife, were were waiting for me on the M1 and it, it wasn't until I was on the M40 and they were tracking me on the, on the app when I get a phone call to say, 
David, we're, we're here to meet you, but you're on the wrong motorway. <laughs> you would have normally have gone, I'm guessing, M1, A1, and along the coast, Edinburgh that way, but instead, yeah, heading up the M40 to the the wrong side of England, David, at that point. Well, it's, it's the quicker route. So, so M40, M42, M6, M7, uh, M74. Um, but yeah, we just we just didn't plan it properly. It was it was one of those. We had a few a few wobbles along the way, if you like. Um, I mean, the, the first the, the first wobble was that unfortunately my wallet was dropped in the BP carriage, oh, wow. and I didn't realise until I got to the M6 tolls and realised I had no money, no cards, no cash, <laughs> and I couldn't get through. Um, so yeah, but really poorly planned. Um, but you know, epic, epic journey. And I think probably the highlights for, for me were the Jaguar members and drivers that came out to meet us en route, uh, of which there were several, you know, a, a beautiful XJ, SHE to XJRs and, and, and S-types and STRs, um, you know, even up until half past two in the morning um, on, on the M6. And, you know, to, to have five or six Jaguars keeping in tow with you and, and keeping you occupied and giving you some... Um, giving you some company it was just it was just really really great thing to see proof that uh, it is a nationwide if not global jaguar family we will come out and support each other and i know lots of people listen to the podcast you did with us a month ago setting this up and we're cheering you along via the uh, various facebook posts that you put out there after that uh, podcast so uh, yeah great to see that they actually came and saw you as well in person because i'm guessing boredom was something that you had to sort of battle along the way as well yeah, boredom, um, uh, no radio, uh, no heating. Uh, it got very, very cold in, in the night. Um, we probably couldn't have picked a worse day to, to, to make the trip. The, the, the whole, at least first half of the trip, up until around about one o'clock in the morning, um, the wind was blowing the car from side to side. Um, at the halfway point, the needle... Um, was showing uh, way below the the halfway fuel um, at the halfway point. It was it was quite quite a lot of despair. But it looked as if we had no chance of making it. It looked as if we were going to fall at least eighty miles short of our destination. Um, and then one maybe two o'clock in the morning, just the wind blew out and things started to change. The MPG started to creep up a little bit. We we still felt that we were going to finish twenty or thirty miles short. Um, of the BP in Inverness, um, but as the night wore on and the <laughs> the sun came up, and you know we were travelling over those, travelling over the 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 A9 beautiful road, um, things started to look a little bit better, and the the group were constantly monitoring the progress on on the live app. Um, I was able to share information with Mark and Lynn, who were then able to share it with our with our team and followers, and. Um, yeah, um, with five miles to go, um, my range was saying three miles. Very, very, very close. But although I'm, I'm delighted to say that we made it. Uh, we made it all the way with no added fuel, um, uh, with with two miles to spare. Amazing! Wow. That's 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 a great thing for the Jag as well, isn't it? To prove that it could actually do that kind of thing. Yeah. No. Ab- absolutely. Um, no. Nobody was sure whether it was possible or not. Um, and we actually ended up doing 590 miles because we went the wrong way. I went the wrong way out of services. Um, so I had to take a break. 
And uh, unfortunately, Google Maps got a bit confused. So I ended up going the wrong way for a couple of miles and I had to do, do a quick U-turn. So 590 miles. And look, dare I say it, had the weather have been better, I honestly believe that we'd have got, you know, we could have carried on and gone over 600 miles on a tank. Yeah, I mean, the, the weather was very bad uh, that day. It was gale force and hammering rain throughout most of the country. And of course, that would have added extra drag to the car. It would have had that effect. But also, you were dodging the traffic, I guess, as well. Had you hit a big tailback or an accident or something that would have stopped the car or made it crawl along a lot slower? That would have totally affected all your calculations, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, absolutely. And when we set off, we were monitoring the, the traffic, certainly on the M25, uh, or especially the M25. And from everything that we could see, there was a long queue at the M3 turn off. There was an even longer queue uh, approaching the M4. Um, and the clock was ticking and we really wanted to get away at eight o'clock. Uh, we really wanted to be off on time, but we were very, very conscious of traffic along the way. Um, you know, probably the, the bit of luck that we had is by the time that I reached the M3, the traffic had dispersed and I was, you know, we, we had a clear run the whole way. So no obstacles, nothing to circumnavigate. We were we were quite fortunate in that respect. What was the uh, plan then had you not made it? Did you have a backup vehicle with you? Was it tins in the boot of petrol or what was the idea? No, it didn't take any, any petrol with me, but no, Mark, Mark and Lynn Atkinson were... Uh, they, they did almost the whole journey with me. So they picked me up somewhere um, on the M6 because they had to race across country from the M1 to the, uh, across country to the, um, to the M40 and M42. Um, but uh, yeah, they picked me up on the M6. They, you know, when we didn't have a lorry to, to follow, they, they broke up the air for me in front. Um, and it was particularly difficult for them as well because it, it was a slow journey. We did the whole journey between 56 and, and 60 mile an hour um, and we, we never deviated from that um, and that's um, <laughs> get a bit tedious I don't mind telling you <laughs> but it did yeah of course as you mentioned there you can't turn on any of the sort of in-car entertainment because all that does is put load on the alternator and that adds extra drag so you might lose the odd mile or two there as well there's no air con so you're basically sat there with your jacket wrapping you up warm and nothing else happening so did you struggle to keep your eyes open was that a challenge uh, honestly no um and when i arrived i mean mark, mark and lynn said that i looked quite tired but i didn't feel it it was it it wasn't as difficult as i thought it was going to be and i think when we when we hit scotland um we you know the, the sun started to come up and things looked a lot brighter in yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a gloriously comfortable car. Um, you know, the, and uh, maybe if I'd have been in a different vehicle, it would have been harder for sure. But I think driving that, it's, it's what it's designed to do, is cover long distances. The main purpose of this, of course, was to raise money for Great Ormond Street. So as we sit here recording today, what is your exact total? Yeah, we're at £2,580 right now. There's another £200 going into the pot on Sunday. And we'll be at Denby's um, show this weekend with, with buckets, waving buckets of people. Um, and hopefully some people will part with, with, with some cash there as well. So uh, I think this weekend will be a weekend where we, we're going to close it down and we're going to move on to the next challenge and the next charity, which is already in motion for July the Fantastic. Well, that must give you a good feeling. I mean, I bet it was great fun to do it, but that's the main reason the objective achieved. 
Yeah, look, it, we've exceeded any expectations that Mark and I had when when we started to to set this up. Um, you know, we we thought if we could make maybe a thousand pounds, then you know that would be a terrific number. But the Jaguar folk and the family have come together. We've had support from everywhere. Um, lots of corporate sponsors as well. You know, they, the decals are still on the car now, and I'm going to keep them on the car just for a little while longer um, because they deserve the recognition as well. So. You know the, the the Jaguar Enthusiast Club have got behind us and you know helped us out with with with, with some fuel, um, which we're eternally grateful for. The guys at Vehicle Revolution have been epic in in supporting and promoting the events, and then you know the guys at um, you know Raptor Graphics and, and, and Rhino Customs. It, it was a mad race to get the decals on the car because the car was still with Andrew Spateri at SE Jags, who was um, doing some maintenance for me and, and giving it a very good service and tune up. Um, but uh, yeah, the day before the challenge, I only had three wheels on the car, and um, there were no decals on it. But the guys pulled together, and I mean, the, the car looks outstanding as well. It's very, very cool. I must have driven up there with a quite a crowd on the motorway, sort of looking at it, wondering what was going on. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, and on the way back, we had um, yeah quite a lot of attention, uh, which is which is great. You know, that, that, that's what we wanted to be. What did you learn, David? About your car on that trip you know you spent a long time sat in that driving seat and a long time monitoring what the engine was doing and how you were driving it what are the sort of top three things you learned about your xjr uh at 56 mile an hour she's completely silent there is no noise at all um i did um i did play around with the seating positions a little, a little bit and decided that I, I, I probably wanted to change that along the way um it was good to shift around but yeah, I, it was just a, a, a joy to drive it. And it's the longest trip that I've taken in the car um, by, by, by a long margin. Um, but at no point, at no point at all, did I feel uncomfortable? Did I feel stressed? Um, did, I, did, I, did I want it to stop? Um, honestly speaking, Wayne, I think if we'd have had the, the drive, I, I could have turned around and just driven home again. And um, it wouldn't have been a problem at all. Well, it's a good accolade for the Jaguar there as a very usable classic now. And uh, yeah, we do term it as a modern classic. A great thing that you've raised so much money for Great Ormond Street and a great thing that you're able to come on this podcast and not only set it up for us, but also tell us how you got on. So uh, before you close the charity fundraising down, just remind us how we can make any last minute donations. Okay, so we can go onto the GoFundMe page. I, I, I believe that you've shared that anyway, Wayne. Um, and if I just have a look here, um, it's https colon forward slash forward slash gofund.me forward slash 3620 small c, small d, small f, small b. And the good news is, like we did last time, we'll put that on the description part of the podcast page. You can easily click on it and donate uh, if you haven't done so already. But it was mainly for fun. Let's be honest, David, wasn't it? It was mainly you getting out in your jag and having an excuse to go for a blooming long drive in it. But what a great excuse that is. Over two grand raised for Great Ormond Street Hospital and you had a ball doing it. You can't say fairer than that. Absolutely. That's spot on. David Jenkins, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wayne. I appreciate your time. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship.
Well, following on from last week's testing up at Donington on Friday in the pouring rain, um, we're now back in the workshop finalising the preparations on mine and Matthew's car ready for Donington, which is on Monday. So um, it's Friday, we've still got a couple more days, um, but we're trying to get all of the final checks and everything completed on both cars. So in the afternoon at Donington, um, from following on from last week, um, it did continue to rain the whole day. So we didn't get any changing conditions, which was actually quite good from a driver's perspective because um, it did stay wet the whole day it wasn't changing from dry to wet so we managed to spend a lot of the time setting the car up in in the wet which is always a benefit so if we do get a wet race on monday which looking at the weather now it it doesn't look like it's going to happen it looks like it's going to be dry but the car can go either way so it's good to have a, a wet setup already in the on the back burner there so we've got that ready um but yeah no i spent the rest of the afternoon um driving around um on the car setting um some different laps and analyzing data with chris in the afternoon so as i was saying before in the morning we spent quite a lot of time with him in the car then he sent a benchmark and then the rest of the afternoon was me basically trying to analyze my data against his and see where i can and can't improve so we did find quite a bit of time which was really really good news um, and interestingly it's, it's not quite where you expect to find the lap time which is really interesting from me from a driver's perspective um, quite often it was the fact that i was carrying too much speed into a corner um, um, which was slowing down my exit speed so that that was interesting um, how much slower Chris was as a driver into some of the faster flowing corners than I was and that was essentially where I was losing time so um, something to take on board um, and yeah really interesting to to see where I'm going wrong really it's um, when you're in the car quite often um, everything goes very fast and and it's only when you kind of watch back and analyze the data against the, vi the video you can clearly see where you're going wrong and where you can find time so it's great to do that so hopefully that gives us a little bit of an edge at Donington on Monday um, but at the end of the day it all relies on a huge amount of other factors as well so um, also we've been busy trying to get Matthew's XJR6 um, ready in time unfortunately on Wednesday we made the decision that the car just wasn't going to be done for Donington which is which is a real shame um, unfortunately mainly due to actually lack of parts um, as most people are probably aware with Covid we're now finding it harder to get parts now than we did originally so a lot of the stock that was in the UK seems to be depleted we're actually waiting on um, some electrical components for the ECU side of things which is a little bit frustrating um, that was damaged in the fire and that's mainly what we had done but all the rest of the bits are now ready so I'm hoping once we get these components we can carry on finishing it but Matthew is going to be out of Donington he's using the Class A XJ40 that we've recently just prepared so um, it's good to see him back out and in the car and hopefully he can spend um, obviously the qualifying getting used to the car and then he's got two races um, it should handle fairly similarly to his X300 um, the setup on this car is very similar we've moved his seat and harnesses over so hopefully it'll feel comfortable to him and uh, um, it's just going to have a fair amount of less power than what the XJR did but um, that will be good to improve his driving skills anyway but um, my car after Donington we've had it back up in the workshops and uh, to be honest with you we've kept it quite simple car was really good at Donington with no issues at all which is a great sign so we've just really had to spanner check it we obviously bedded in some new pads as I said before um, we've swapped some tires around um, and we've just done all the fluids which is something that we're, we're always doing on these just because 
like I say, it's just not worth the risk at the end of the day. So we've gone round it. Um, we've actually added some brake ducting. Um, we've had issues with brakes at Donington in the past. We're using a slightly different pad compound as well. So we've just added some brake ducting as a bit of a safety net so we can either um, take it on or off depending on what we need. Interestingly, at Donington, we were actually getting the opposite in the wet. We were actually getting a very slight vibration, which was actually too much air to the front brake. So um, that, that was something that I'm not experienced and something that Chris had actually picked up from his driver experience uh, that he noticed on the car so yeah that's pretty much it really we've kept it quite simple with my car um, slightly different geometry setup for Donington that's just something that we always do so we've just tweaked that but other than that it is pretty much as it was at Silverstone um, and we had a very competitive package at Silverstone but James and Colin I'm sure will be um, out blazing so we'll see how it goes but fingers crossed it's on Bank Holiday Monday um, and as always you can now watch it live on YouTube and on TV so fingers crossed that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh,